and welcome to Three Houses, One Podcast, where we talk about writing, self-publishing, and publishing industry issues. My name is Rigney, and I'm joined today by my friends Brittany and Sarah. This month, we'll be discussing literary agents. Before we dive in, do either of you have any housekeeping? We most certainly do. So in addition to this podcast, we have our website, threehousespress.com. It's a weekly blog where we post about publishing industry topics, writing tips, all sorts of different things. So please go ahead and check that out. And we also have our Patreon page, patreon.com slash threehousespress. On our Patreon, you can sign up and you'll get our monthly newsletter, early access to this podcast, and depending on what tier you choose to support us at, we also have two novels that we release chapter by chapter every month, so definitely check us out, give us some love. So, today we're going to be talking about literary agents, what they do, how you can get one, um, all of that good stuff, and then we will get into our debate, which is going to be a very exciting one, I can tell already. So why don't we start with what a liter- what a literary agent is and what they do. Yeah, um, so to put it in kind of the most simplest terms, a literary agent is an agent who represents you in your book and works on your behalf to help get you published. Um, in the traditional publishing landscape, you really can't get published by any of the big five publishers without having a literary agent. They are your go-between. They do all of the work on your behalf, and the work that they do is generally really good and really helpful and tends to take a lot off your plate as you try to write your book. Yeah, it's definitely incredibly important to have a literary agent if you want to be highly successful in the traditional publishing realm. Certainly you can send your manuscripts into editors um, unsolicited and without an agent, Um, but a lot of them won't even look at it. And a lot of times too, your agent has connections to all of the right people in the industry. They've taken editors to lunch and learned more about them. They have little files in databases where they record all sorts of information about that editor so when the right manuscript comes for that editor they know exactly who to contact um they likely you know have their phone number they have their email they know them well enough to even just walk up to them and say hey like i have this book that i think would be perfect for you because i know you like xyz and that is a great way to get your foot in the door and make sure that your book is getting published by the right editors well And in addition to that, you know, literary agents like editors tend to have a specialty. So if you're writing a sci-fi book, you're going to want to go to a literary agent who traditionally helps to get sci-fi books published, who works with sci-fi authors, because they're going to know the editors who work in that genre. Um, So they're just an incredibly powerful tool um, when it comes to getting your foot in the industry and in the door. And also literary agents are connoisseurs of taste. So if you can impress a literary agent and if your book can really leave a mark on them and if they can see where your book fits in in the market, that's just going to help you so much more as you start to try to break in and get your book published. For sure. And then when it comes to contracts, they will do virtually everything for you. It's very important to have a literary agent maybe even more so than a lawyer a lawyer would also obviously be helpful for a contract but literary agents know exactly what to look for in contracts in the publishing industry and they'll help you more than you could ever believe right because there's so many little clauses and little details in your contracts that might you have no idea what that means why would you if you have never seen that contract before if you're not entirely sure on the legal terminology or any of the other details in that having someone who can look at it and say this is what this clause actually means for you um, and then more importantly this is a good clause for you to have in this contract and this is a bad clause for you to have in this contract and here's another place that I think we can negotiate is so important to making sure that you get best position possible as you're entering the industry. Yeah, I mean, 
you can be an author and you can research as much of the industry as you want. You know, you can know the houses, you can know the imprints, you can kind of know where you'd like your book to sit. You can have all of that information. You can read Publishers Weekly, but there's a very fine difference between being an outsider and wanting to get into that world and partnering with someone who actively works in that world, who knows the movers and shakers, who knows the legalese, who knows everything there is to know about the contract, about what's going to serve your interests best. And um, it's just an incredible partnership that if you want to go the traditional publishing route, you really have, you do have to have an agent and you're just going to want to make sure that when it comes to finding an agent, you find the right one for you, which we'll touch on that a little bit later. So there's one thing that we should also talk about before we move on to how do you get a literary agent and that's money and their cut. So Sarah, do you want to talk about that? Sure. I always get the money (laughs) topics. So interesting. Um, Yeah, an agent does not work for free. Um, An agent will take a cut of all of the works that they help you sell. Um, It's typically 15%. Some agents might go lower. A lot of agents are going to go higher. But 15% is about what you should expect to be giving your agent. Um, So in other words, if you, after all the contracts are negotiated, let's say you're going to make $1 off of royalties for every book that you sell, your agent is going to take 15% of that. So you're left with 85 cents per copy. Um, And they don't get any other money than that. If you have, if you are working with an agent and they say, well, you need to pay me a few thousand dollars up front, they're not a reputable agent. Run, don't walk away. A reputable agent will only work by taking a cut of what sells. Yeah. Agents work on commission. So if you ever have an agent who's saying like you owe them this or you owe them that, Mm, bad news bears so just that that's not what you're looking for so I think that's one of the other thing that's really beneficial about an agent is that you're not paying them Mm -hmm. you know if they like your book and they accept your manuscript and decide to represent it you don't have to pay them a fee you don't have to they're not going to bill you for your hours they're going to ultimately just take a cut of whatever it is when you sell your manuscript and um your royalties. And I think that's a really powerful partnership. Like imagine doing something for a living on commission. You have to believe in that thing. And certainly there's a lot of salespeople out there that maybe don't believe in their product and just find a way to sell it anyway. But unlike a lot of other sales areas, you as an agent are getting hundreds, if not thousands of manuscripts a year to look at. And if they choose you out of all of that, That means they really believe that if I put the time and energy into this book, it's going to be great. It's going to sell and I'm going to be able to pay my rent. So I think if you do pick up and get picked up by an agent, it's important to remember that anything that they tell you to do, any suggestions that they have, it's because they truly believe in this thing or they wouldn't have picked you. Right. And they are the expert. They really are Mm -hmm. in their relationship. And so definitely trust them. And I think, you know, while we're still on the topic of money, let's talk real quickly about subsidiary rights. Um, So subsidiary rights are any rights that are kind of in addition to the sale of your manuscript. So film rights, TV rights, audiobook um, rights, audiobook rights, um, foreign translations of your book. the international market is not guaranteed when you sell your book to a publisher. So you can reserve those rights and work with a publisher in France if you want your book to be sold in France as opposed to going through, like, if you're published by Simon & Schuster here in the States, you won't have to have Simon & Schuster publish your book in French. You could actually go directly to a French publisher. Your agent is going to determine which of your subsidiary rights you should hold on to, and then they're going to work with you to help sell your book further. And obviously, again, the commission's going to come into place when it comes to those subsidiary rights. And honestly, that's where a lot of authors make money. Um, Subsidiary rights are a huge, huge, huge deal. And so that's why a lot of agents will try and have authors reserve their film and TV rights, um, because that's where a lot of money's going to come into play. And publishers will usually let that go as a negotiation tactic, just because 
there's not a lot of books out there that do get optioned for TV or film. And so a publisher usually is fine with letting that go. Sometimes they aren't. Sometimes they read a book and they're like, yeah, no, this is going to be a book that will get optioned. But then they'll negotiate something else. So I think when it comes to subsidiaries, because that's how publishers make a lot of their money back and it's how you can make a lot of extra money, those are usually the areas that you're going to see a lot of contention between your agent and your editor. A lot of contention that you won't see most of. Um, That's part of a benefit, but that's where a lot of the battles are fought when it comes to your contract. Yeah, and a lot of publishers are starting to demand audiobook rights. Mm -hmm. Um, It used to be that most publishers didn't have an audio wing in-house, but now with the growth of audiobook over the last, you know, 10 years, most publishers have created their own studios and are producing the audiobooks in-home. so or not in home in house so you start to see like penguin random house and harper collins and all of the big five publishers are starting to retain the audiobook licenses more because they they know that that's profitable um and with the film and tv rights you know if a book that is published by a publisher does get turned into something they're gonna get a kickback in Mm -hmm. some way whether that's a movie tie-in edition of the book or you know just boosted sales because people want to read it first exactly so there's definitely a lot of ways that money can be made and an agent is going to be the one who's really going to be your advocate when it comes to that for sure so now that we've talked about what a literary agent is and what they do next step how should we find one? Needle in a haystack, anyone? <laughs> yeah. The internet, baby. <laughs> I mean, well, first, you can go the route of the dinosaurs, and you can pull out Writer's Market. Um, an edition is released every year, and it basically gives you a directory of all of the people in the publishing industry that you can go to. You know, editors are listed, agents, etc. You can find this book at your local Barnes & Noble in the reference section. Um, But it looks like an old telephone book, if you remember what telephone books look like. I was just about (laughs) to say they're they're about the thickness of a telephone book, but they're in better colors than the telephone book. I think the most recent one is like purple or something. So Much easier on the eyes. Yeah, it looks prettier on your um, bookshelf than than a typical telephone book. Yeah, so you can reference the writer's market. Um, it's a good way to kind of find out who's who, um, gives you some information on them. Um, so yeah, if you want to go the old-fashioned way, definitely check out writer's market. But uh, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit more about the interwebs and how we can use that to find an agent? The interwebs, well, the next great place that you can go is Twitter. If you are a writer and you are not following a handful of agents on Twitter, you're missing out um, because their content is actually usually really spot on to what you're working on. And even if you're not necessarily interested in working with that agent, following them on Twitter is important because they have all sorts of industry news and insights that they share for free on Twitter. Um, And... More importantly, follow the ones you do want to work with. Start before you even bother querying, um, which is the process of sending materials to them to hope that they pick you up. Um, You can start to get a sense of what their personality might be like, what sort of things they're really interested in, and make sure that you're not wasting their time or your time by querying them when you choose to move forward. Yeah, there are amazing, amazing literary agents to follow on Twitter. And a lot of literary agents are published in their own right. Um, One of my favorite literary agents to follow on Twitter is Eric Smith. His handle is at Eric Smith Rocks. Um, He's represented some amazing books in the last five years. He's also published a couple of his own. But he's funny. He's insightful. He really has a pulse on the industry, what's trending, and... um, I think he's just one of those people that if you're interested in being published, particularly if you are a YA author, um, you might want to give him a follow. And agents are in a lot of ways a little bit arrogant and kind of have some egos because they're the ones that are finding these things, the bigger the sales that they manage to get. I mean, there is like an ego trip required to be part of this job. And so another great thing about following them online is they will call out bad practices that they're hearing from other agents 
Um, so you can kind of keep track of some things that are not great if you see them in an agent. And so if you're finding an agent and that seems to be where they're leaning is towards some of those practices, um, you can pull the plug without too much pain. It's a very small community. Like Mm -hmm. if you are a literary agent, agents know you. Um, so that's why, especially too, it's really easy to kind of find the snake in the grass among literary agents because, it all gets publicized now. It might have been harder 20 years ago when we didn't have social media, um, but we've kind of reached a point with accountability culture with social media in the publishing industry where it's like, you know, if someone's kind of suspect and they're doing things that aren't maybe the most ethical choices, they're going to get called out. Right, which is just a benefit for you. For sure. Um, Further on the interwebs... There are industry publications, blogs, websites, that kind of thing that you can search out and find that will have similar information. I think Twitter is probably your first go-to just because, like we just said, social media people are pretty blunt. You can find out what you really need to. Um, But there's other – you might want to do, like, more research than just Twitter once you find a few Mm -hmm. agents that you're interested in. Well, and Publishers Lunch and Publishers Weekly also both announce deals on a daily basis. So um, if you check those websites, you'll be able to see what are the deals that are being made because when they announce the deal, like this book acquired or this publisher acquired this book and the agent is X. So you'll be able to start to see kind of a trend. If you are a YA author, you're going to want to start to see, okay, these are all of the YA books that are being acquired, and these are the agents that are representing the books that are being acquired. So you're going to kind of start to see a pattern in the industry and what's popping up and, you know, do your research, look at those books. Do those books kind of align with what you're publishing or with what you're writing, with what you want to be published? Um, I think, I can't stress enough the research component. And I think while we're on the topic of similar books to what you have, a lot of times authors will thank their agent in the acknowledgement section of the book. So find some books, you know, even go to the library and just find like the shelf where you think your book would be housed when it's finally published and just look through those pages and make a little list of all of the different um, agents that are working with those authors and then do a little bit more reading on them after because usually you can find a lot of agents that way and when it comes to querying your agent you know sending out your query letter to try and get an agent the most important thing that you can have in your arsenal when you are in the process of querying is to know who the agents that you're soliciting are who are they? What types of books do they represent? How do those books align with yours? Um, is it that they're in the same genre? Is it in the, is it that they're in the same subgenre, um, same audience level? You know, it would be absolutely disastrous if you were writing, you know, a why a paranormal romance and instead you solicit an agent who only submits middle grade manuscripts or who only works with paranormal adult romance. It it can get as nuanced as that. So just find those patterns and really pay attention to those details because if you do solicit the wrong agent, I mean, that just makes you look bad. I mean, there's really no other word for it, right? It makes you look unprepared. It makes you look disorganized. It makes you look like someone that they don't want to work with. Yeah. It also... Just a side note, it's an extreme faux pas to query if you are looking at an agent who works with like a larger agency, it's considered a faux pas to query multiple agents within that agency. You really do need to identify the one within that group that would be right for you. And if they think that it's a good manuscript, they believe in it, but maybe they don't have time, then they individually will pass it to another agent in that group. But you do not. You just pick one. Very good point. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of unwritten etiquette when it comes to soliciting literary agents. But even though it's like unwritten, it's not hard to, 
to find the information. And they do say on their websites, if you are looking at a particular literary agency, they give you their guidelines and you do want to stay within those guidelines. It's, it's very important to be respectful in the process because you're ultimately, your ultimate goal is to get an agent and you're going to want to work well with that person. And you don't want to become a problem. So as you're sort of soliciting manuscripts to several different agencies, you know, they all talk to each other. So if one agency is like Mm -hmm. that person was a pain, they kept soliciting every single agent and violating our query processes. Well, agent at the other house, they're not going to want to hear that and hear that you're a problem child. Yeah. And also like, let's say you get rejected because Maybe they read through your query and they're like, hey, your first 10 pages, which is usually what they'll ask for is just the first 10 pages. Um, Maybe they're not snappy enough. You need to go back and fix that. Well, if you just like keep querying them and bugging the heck out of them, even if they would maybe consider you if you did go in and make those revisions and did tighten up what they asked you to tighten up, if you're a problem, that door shuts forever because they just don't want to work with you. Yeah, this is not one of those things where the squeaky wheel gets uh, the grace. Like, you need to think of those guidelines as not suggestions, but real concrete rules and follow them because otherwise you're not going to like the results. And as much as they work for you, they don't have to. Again, they get hundreds, if not thousands of manuscripts every year. And while there are definitely some books that can't be replicated – There's a lot of them that can. Like, let's be really honest. Don't give them any reason to say no to you and yes to somebody else. Okay, so how do you know if you have the right agent once you've gotten an agent? I think first it does come back to that research. Um, Just knowing that they represent the kind of books that you have, they've represented in the past books that are similar to your book. Um, But also, I mean... I think personality is a big deal. You know, you can be submitting your queries and keep querying and querying and then finally get through to someone who's like, hey, I like your book. And maybe they come to you and they've got fantastic ideas, but maybe there's just something about that person that you don't like or, you know, your personalities don't click. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to, you know, how much are you willing to say, hey, they've got great ideas and they have a a long track of success, but I just can't stand them as a person versus, you know, do I want to try this again and get someone else? It's really going to kind of come down to your, your threshold, I guess. Right. Right. Like it's a really important professional relationship. And I think it's really hard to walk away from someone if they finally like go for you. And sometimes you'll just have to decide if there are certain things that are worth just bucking up and putting up with and certain things that maybe aren't. And I mean, if you're tentative about it, you can always go with the agent for your first book. You know, once they get it sold to a publisher, you can always reassess and you can get a new agent. Um, Sometimes it's easier to change agents after your first book is published. So that's something to kind of keep in mind long term. If you don't see that there's longevity to that relationship, you can change agents. You just want to make sure that if you do, again, that you're not coming across as the one who was the problem. Um, It's really important to have a partnership with your agent. Um, But interpersonal working relationships are difficult, too. Agents are tricky little beasts. They get a lot of emails in a day. And when they're not answering them, they don't have a ton of time left. So every agent is a little different in terms of how much help they're going to give you before they throw your work to the wolves that are editors so that's one thing before you sign with an agent like if you're on the fence with them a good question to ask them is like what are you going to do for me in terms of editing in terms of helping me guide myself on social media and through marketing efforts um what are the things that you are going to push for in a contract? You know, you can ask an agent all of these things in advance. And there's a lot of agents who will say, I will refer you to a wonderful freelance editor. I will not edit it myself. Um, Because again, they don't have time. And there's a lot of agents who are going to say, well, I'm going to edit it with you so that I know it's exactly what I want it to be 
to sell it to an editor. So make sure you ask those questions Mm -hmm. because every agent's going to have a slightly different answer. Um, let's talk about non-traditionally published authors. So do they need a literary agent or how should they go about using a literary agent later in their career? There is benefit to having a literary agent as a non-traditional author for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one being subsidiary rights, which we kind of touched on earlier. Um, you know, as a self-published author, you'll have all of the rights to your work and you'll keep, you know, generally, what is it, 50% of your royalties, depending on which platform you put your book through, would you say? You know, yeah. depending depending on whether you publish through Kindle or um, whomever your platform is that you self-publish through, they're going to take a cut of your books, but you're keeping a higher percentage of your sales as a self-published author than a traditionally published author. But because you don't have that backing of a house, you don't have that huge platform, that notoriety, that a traditionally published novel is going to get. You're not going to have that built-in marketing package. You're not going to have splashy ad campaigns. Um, It might be harder to negotiate the sale of your books in other countries or an audio version or, you know, if push comes to shove and your book is really popular, a film. So that's where, you know, a literary agent would really come in handy. Yeah, so I think it's definitely one of those things that you can wait as an indie author until you start to have people sending you inquiries like, hey, do you have any interest in optioning this for film or TV? Or do you have any interest in whatever? Because frankly, you almost like don't even need to do too much to get an agent at that point. You like forward that email and say, hey, how would a working relationship between us go? And they'll probably, if they already have people sniffing, like, you're going to get an agent, no problem. So I would say it's one of those things like worry about it when you need it. But just make sure in the back of your mind, you know that that's something you should do. Don't try and sell those subsidiary rights on your own. And we did talk about this in a previous episode, but we kind of talked about, you know, self-publishing versus being in a traditional publishing house. And, you know, the benefits for a self-published author to eventually transition into a house, you know, again, accessing in-house marketing and publicity and taking a lot of that off of your plate. Also having someone else edit your work and do it professionally and really kind of devote their time to your book to craft it. Um, There are a lot of um, self-published authors who choose to go into the house system and have a lot of the things that they do as a self-published author be taken off of their plate. And If you are a self-published author who's interested in going into the house, well, an an agent is the one who's going to get you there. Giant ass asterisk here, though. I feel like a lot of self-published authors think that if you put your book up, it sells moderately well, that you're then going to sell that exact book to a traditional publisher. No. It's just publishers want all of the sales. They don't want your leftovers. And it's a very, very rare circumstance that a traditional publisher will publish something that has once been self-published. So that's just something to keep in mind. Okay, so that is our little chat about literary agents. Hopefully you learned something. If there's something that you think we missed or there's something you're curious about, drop us a line and we can discuss it um, at the top of our next episode. Um, And then let's get into our debate. Our special debate this month is about the Fifty Shades of Grey series and whether or not the first, tri- like, three that are in Anastasia's perspective are the better three or the three that came kind of mm, haphazardly afterwards in <laughs> Mr. Grey's perspective uh, are better or not. So I do want to make one thing very clear before we have this debate either way whoever wins whoever gets which side whatever uh we do not like this series (laughs) whatsoever (laughs) 
it just happens to be what we're debating. We're not promoting it. We're not saying that you should. If you have not had the pleasure of pleasure. reading all six of these. Yeah. I say that. I, say that with I think quotes. they would say pain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of these six books, I'm absolutely not recommending that you start them today, tomorrow, anywhere in the future. They're not good. Don't even watch the movies. That's not what we're saying. We just happen to have read them and we have a lot of thoughts, feelings, etc. So we're going to be sharing those with you today. But like I said, total disclaimer, please don't think that we're recommending these to you because we're not. I mean, that should be clear by the end of the debate, but, but just flat out bold before we start, we're not recommending these books to you. So we're going to do a coin flip now. What we decided on is that the person who wins the coin toss will pick, or no, the person who wins the coin toss gets the three original books. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Sarah's done heads, Brittany's tails, because this coin happens to touch on West Virginia, which touches Ohio. So. <laughs> we have very weird strategies for picking we really side do. of a coin. I think we've spent more time trying to figure out what side of the coin we want than well, we have, like, thinking about what to debate in this debate. I literally yes. don't know what to say right okay. now. Okay. <laughs> so weird. Important. All right. <laughs> Ready? One, yeah. two, three. It's heads. Oh, fuck. Ugh. See, I actually, I really wanted the original trilogy, so bummer. I actually, I am mad about it, but in the back of my mind, I think that was where my stronger argument was. So, look out, Brittany. I'm you ready. You go first. I go first. Oh, boy, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I'm just going to say Sarah is going to go first, because it makes more sense to talk about the first trilogy first. Let me get my time, my stopwatch. Sarah, are you ready? I am ready. I'm in the power position. Okay. Let's do this. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> One, two, three, go. All right. Here's the thing. 100% firmly believe that the books are better from Christian Grey's perspective. I'm just going to put that out right away. There's better characterization. There's better development. It's just like a better story. That doesn't mean it's a good story. It's a better story. However... You have to have read the original trilogy to get value from Christian's perspective, because otherwise it would be so full of plot holes. There's so many things that it relies on you knowing what's happening with Anastasia to have value from what Christian is seeing. Like one of my favorite moments in the movies and in the books is in the third freed whatever is when Anastasia like shows off against the... Um, architect because the architect's being all flirty with Christian and so Christian leaves the room to take a phone call and Anastasia's like no you can call me Mrs. Gray to like get this woman to back off and in Christian's perspective you don't see that scene at all he leaves the room and he comes back he's like we're good so you have to have the original trilogy therefore it's better that's a minute (laughs) Brittany are you prepared to rebut are you prepared to fight against the scene that is, you can call me Mrs. Gray. You just let me know when you're ready, girl. I really don't have, like, I don't have an argument because, like, tech, I mean, they're technically better. Like, the characterization is a little bit better in his version, but, like, they're insufferable. All right, so everything Sarah said, I completely agree with. Like, honestly, I never, ever in a million years thought I would say this, but, like, the original trilogy is a little bit better. Um, If you are going on the assumption that it provides a fuller experience, um, but what I will say about his trilogy is that I think E.L. James's writing improved like a little bit so I mean yeah the books are still insufferable but her writing's a little bit better so if you want to read something that doesn't feel like painstakingly awful his books are you know marginally better than the original trilogy and just from the context of writing so I would say that that makes them better and that's 54 (laughs) seconds um (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, I just, okay, like, this is, this is literally turning into the Twilight debate again, but here's my Yeah, theme. we need to start debating like, books we like. I, uh, I don't know. It's just, like, it's so bad, because, like, we wouldn't have the, his perspective without hers, and, like, the only character that gets any kind of considered characterization is Christian, regardless of what series you're reading. The only character that you feel like you know or understand in either series is him. Like, you would think that the books coming from his perspective would give you a little bit more information about Anna. And like, yeah, you kind of hear a little bit about, oh, why he likes her, but also she's still just a cardboard character. Like, he keeps saying, like, oh, I like her because she's beautiful or she's witty, and I'm like, but nothing that she's doing or saying is indicative of that. Yeah. So I thought, like, from his perspective, we'd be getting... Because, like, in the original trilogy, it's all inside her head. For the most part, like, you don't really... I feel like there's a certain percentage where you're kind of like, did she vocalize what she was thinking? Like, you know, like, what are we getting here? Like, where is the development coming in? And so, like, from his perspective, I feel like there's more dialogue. Like, it felt like there were some scenes between them that weren't in the original trilogy where I was like, oh, they're having a conversation. I don't remember this conversation happening before. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, I'm like, there's nothing in this conversation that makes her interesting or develops her further as a character. She's still just cardboard. Yeah. Christian Grey is the only interesting character in those books. And so from Christian's perspective, like seeing him internally develop as opposed to just him developing from Anastasia's perspective, I think is nifty. I think it makes for a more interesting read. Again, I agree with Brittany. They are technically better written as well. But yeah, I mean, they're just, it didn't fulfill what you wanted it to. You don't actually, like Brittany said, you would think you would get to see some sort of, like, why on his perspective. And, like, yeah, you you get that he's infatuated with her. You get that he, you know, over the books goes to love her and he's not, he starts out thinking he's never going to be able to love anybody. And then you see him grow to love her. Sure. But you don't get why. Like, there's really nothing about this specific human being. Like Brittany said, she's such a cardboard character that it's, like, it's utterly confusing. Even though you do see the proof of it, you do see him be obsessed with her, fall in love with her. You're still not like, oh, I totally get it. She's amazing. She's not. She's very annoying. Mm -hmm. Well, here's my biggest, like, number one thing that bothers me the most is that... I think E.L. James failed in her original premise for writing these books from his perspective. There was so much backlash from the BDSM community, from um, mental health communities about his treatment of Anastasia, about how he was really toxic and he was very abusive and like it wasn't a true BDSM relationship, like he was grooming her and abusing her like mentally emotionally um and so there was a lot of like lashback backlash on that um when the original trilogy came out and then she started writing gray and i think her goal with that was to kind of humanize christian more and to be like no he didn't mean to do this like this is what he was actually thinking and the thing is as you're reading his books he's just really really creepy like Mm -hmm. i'm sorry like i always thought he was creepy from anna's perspective Mm -hmm. but it's so much creepier when you're reading it from his perspective and you're like makes it seem so normal yeah he he, his motivations he like does not comprehend at all that the things that he's doing are wrong or are twisted or that he's manipulative like it really is an abusive relationship and it's super scary that like this woman wrote this series about an abusive relationship and then went on to write a second series to be like, no, my abusive relationship wasn't abusive and here's why. And it's like, yeah. no, it it still really is. Like instead you just get to know the full scope of the stuff he was doing to keep control over her. And, like, from her perspective, like, you know what's happening, you see it happening, but you don't see, like, all of the emails. You don't see all the people he calls and texts to, like, do things with their computers and, you know, whatever else. 
And like, yeah. in his perspective, you do. You see all of the crap that he does to like pin her down. Yeah, force control. Okay, so I'm gonna put a cap on this and, <laughs> and declare Sarah our winner. Why, thank yeah. you. Um, I think everyone's in agreement um one last point though that I do Mm. want to talk about Brittany and I have discussed this at length um in the past but the ages of everyone involved yes boggles the Brittany and I have also discussed this this was actually a highly entertaining read from the situation that I rapid fire read them like all three books in like a week and then Brittany Uh was catching up and like texting me as she would find things that are frustrating and it was mm-hmm. so entertaining to just, like, have these rants all the time. But for sure, the ages yeah. are so stupid. Wild. You're telling me that he needed to be at minimum 32. I think he should have been 34 or 35. Yeah. But, like, mm-hmm. minimum he needed to be 32. For those not in the know, Christian Grey is a cool 28 years old. No, 27, I think, he, starting the series. He 27 turns, 20, turns 28. Yeah. He turns, he has his 28th birthday in the series. She is 21 years old when all of this starts. The whole thing takes place over like a year and a half max. And also, so yeah. And, it's just, the timing is and I f- out of And I feel control. like the original series just kind of glosses over what he does. They're just like, he owns this company. Yeah. It makes a shit ton of money. He has a shit ton of money. But in his perspective, you really see like what he does. And most of it's telecom. You're telling yeah. me that someone managed to hit billionaire status at age 28 doing. No, not before. before like, like 20, like four. Right. Because he's like, he's comfortable. Like the amount, like how in control of everything that he is at 28 with like a board and a full like CEO, mm-hmm. like all of that. I don't know that many business terms, but like he's like up at the top, very secure. Nothing's messing with him at 27. Yeah. So we have to say that he's been established this way, what, for like four years right. at and least? Well, they he said he dropped out of, they said he dropped out of Harvard. So he right. could be his... like 19, 20 is when he started. But even then, but like, like you can't get to that stage in telecom, no. which is a super established industry. Yeah. In Can that I amount just, of time. Like, this is, I have to put this I have to put this out there into the world. This is the prime example of why E.L. James is not a good writer. Because this book, the original Fifty Shades of Grey book was published in 2011. What was happening in 2011? Big tech. The birth of big tech was in 2011. She was teed up. He was at Harvard. I'm sorry. How how difficult would it have been to have been like, oh, he was at Harvard. He's a genius. Like he made this app in his dorm and then moved out to Seattle because Seattle's like Silicon Junior like Silicon Valley Junior, like you had it was it was that just up. right there. It was right it there, was and instead she's right like, there. he's gonna be in telecom because it's gonna humanize him to be doing something boring, and also like he can't also be a genius and like psychotic, like that wouldn't work. And then also, I feel like she wanted to kind of force down this thought of like he's a humanitarian because he's building these tablets that are solar powered to bring like connectivity to third world countries. And I'm like, okay, there are so many different ways that you could have been like, he has some redeeming qualities. Building a solar powered tablet, ain't it? That ain't it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I have one last, one last thing that I wanted to put out into the universe as well that I think we've all discussed. The book would have ultimately been better if she had alternated perspectives from the beginning. Yes, 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 yes. Because, and I will, to my grave, many traditional romance books alternate in, I mean, Kindle Unlimited, full of these things. It's going from the one perspective to the other. You've got a nice, like, you know tight 25 chapters and you're all good every you get to see not the exact same scenes because this is the other thing that I'll die on the fact that she did gray at least the first very first book in his perspective as a one-to-one with the original 50 shades is exhausting Mm -hmm. she literally does every single scene every single email Mm -hmm. from the other person from his perspective rather than her and it's like you're getting absolutely nothing she finally learns 
this by the third book where she inputs new scenes that you didn't actually get in the in the third book of hers so you get to see some quote-unquote new things it's right. kind of stuff that you know happens but you don't actually see it happen so you're like okay great so she learned something in the 11 years we've been doing this great but it would have been so classically easy it's not like the first time that people have done a double perspective you know chapter to chapter in one book didn't happen by the time she was doing she should have known that this was a possibility it would have made everything better she would have had less backlash from the community to begin with if she had done this but mm. there's the problem and then it would have been too far away from twilight and this was twilight yeah, well, fan fiction and then, too, I think about, like, the publishing timetables with why she maybe didn't write new scenes. It took her a long time to put out Freed. Um, yeah, because she actually had to do work. She actually had to do work. Like, think of if you're their publisher and you're just trying to strike while the iron is hot and just, like, get through it as best as you can and as quick as you can and make it as much money as you can. If you know that that's how long it's going to take her to write a handful of new scenes... I wouldn't encourage her to do it either. But I think now right, with yeah. this one, enough time had passed and maybe enough interest had died that they were like, let's try and like boost the reviews a little bit by having you actually spend some time on it. I have no idea if that's actually the conversation that was had, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Well, there is one thing I'd like to point out before we, we do close this debate. Um, the the book Freed, the, the most recent in the gray his perspective trilogy it is the first book that el james has published under her new um imprint at oh, source books because mm-hmm. of the of the recent yeah. shakeup. Yeah. you know she, she announced changed publishers was it like six months ago i can't remember when it Something came out like exactly but it was announced that she was leaving penguin random house and that she was taking her entire backlist with her to source books where she was going to have her own imprint. I um, want to say it was like March, maybe April. So it wasn't was even six months ago. No, had, it wasn't. I don't think it was Christmas. Had the Mister come out yet? Isn't that her yeah. other one? Yeah, the, that came out a long time the ago. The Mister came out in 2019. Okay. I remember because I was still in Boston and oh, I read that's it. right. Brittany read it. Yeah, I didn't read it, but she told me all about it, and I was like, yeah. I'm not interested I gave in this her whatsoever. A, I remember Detailed it. Yeah. plot breakdown. It's not good. Um, and I think, honestly, like, that is indicative of the sales numbers. So one of the most interesting things to me about um, Freed is that the paperback edition of it, I believe, retailed at, like, 14 or 16.99 a trade paperback, which that's very expensive mm-hmm. for a trade paperback. Trade paperbacks trade paperback originals usually are about like 10.99 to 14.99 mm-hmm. so like starting a book at 14.99 to 16.99 that's on the higher end of a trade paperback um and for those of you who don't know a trade paperback is the same size as um a hardcover just without the hardcovers so the pages are the same size in terms of trim they're a little bit larger than a mass market paperback um and they they tend to have like a little bit more prestige, right? You know, um, they're nicer, you you know, they're nicer. Um, the print is usually a little bit bigger. And usually if the publisher puts an author's book to a trade size, it shows that they have like a lot of confidence in the book, right? That they're, um, starting a public, they're starting an author with a trade rather than a mass market. Not that there's anything wrong with a mass market paperback. I live and die by those. Um, but, Gray or Freed, which is the last one in the Gray trilogy, was released as a trade paperback original and an ebook release. And the ebook started retailing at $7.99, which was like half the price of the paperback. So already there's this huge disparity between the cost of the two books. And it released a month ago and they had already discounted it from, I think, $7.99 to $5.99. And then a couple of days ago, it was a $3.99 deal on BookBub. For a book that's been out than less for less than a month at that point. I I had no problem getting it for my library. And like this book free just came out. And I like walked into my library. I had no problems getting my hands on it. It's not like there was you know, I'm in a South Dakota library chain. There's not a ton of copies of anything floating around. And this was a new release. So it was just a little 
interesting to me that no one really seemed to care. And I feel like around here there's a lot of bored housewives and, you know. Yeah people who are educators and stuff that just would have picked that up because it's a slow summer month Mm -hmm. so i want to give credit where credit's due all of this information came from jen um from at jen reads romance on twitter the original trade paperback cost for gray 18 dollars. that's what it was so it was significantly higher like Like, mm. that's the cost of like a hardcover book almost like that's a low-end hardcover Mm-hmm. And then the original ebook price was seven fifty, and um, three weeks after its release, it dropped down to five ninety nine. And then, um, literally two days ago, it was three ninety nine. It was a three ninety nine deal on BookBub. So again, that means that this is the first book that El James has released on her new imprint at Sourcebooks, and it's already a three ninety nine ebook deal. Like that's not. I'm very, very interested to see where this goes, especially for a blockbuster series. Like, that's the last one. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I know I just made Sarah's argument (laughs) even more. (laughs) All right, Um, we all knew. (laughs) Yeah, we all knew, and I think it's. I think it's an important case study for the Mm -hmm. industry. If it's yeah. not a good debate, it's at least a really good case study. It's definitely something that if you're ever interested in, like, if you're writing a romance and you're trying to figure out perspectives and everything like that, like, this is a great, you know, even if you just read the first one in each of the trilogies, just to kind of learn more about why alternating perspectives are valuable or, like, what sort of happens if you just choose one perspective and as compared to another one, I think it is, like, a really interesting thing to read to try and figure that out yeah you could use it as a writing exercise Mm -hmm. to like write in another character's perspective even if you're not planning on using that in your like final chapters or final draft um it's a good writing exercise to like explore what you think other characters are doing Mm -hmm. even you know right cool cool okay so that ends our debate that ends our Such podcast. Such as it was. <laughs> and it ends our podcast. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. So that was us this month. We did literary agents. We hope you learned something. Let us know. And then we will see you next month. Thank you for listening to Three Houses, One Podcast. We'll see you on the flip side. Bye. Bye. Bye.